I had been telling Mr. Kennedy how much I thought of you, as a good liberal. And I came in and spoilt it all. Yes, you did. You knocked down my little house, and I must build it all up again. Don't trouble yourself, Lady Laura. I shall. It will be a great deal of trouble, a great deal indeed, but I shall take it. I mean you to be very intimate with Mr. Kennedy, and to shoot his grouse, and to stalk his deer, and to help to keep him in progress as the Liberal Member of Parliament. I am quite prepared to admit, as a friend, that he would go back without some such help. Oh, I understand. I do not believe that you do understand at all. But I must endeavour to make you do so by degrees. If you are to be my political pupil, you must at any rate be obedient. The next time you meet Mr. Kennedy, ask him his opinion instead of telling him your own. He has been in Parliament twelve years, and he was a good deal older than you when he began. At this moment a side door was opened, and the red-haired, red-bearded man whom Phineas had seen before entered the room. He hesitated a moment, as though he were going to retreat again, and then began to pull about the books and toys which lay on one of the distant tables, as though he were in quest of some article. And he would have retreated, had not Lady Laura called to him. "'Oswald,' she said, "'let me introduce you to Mr. Finn. Mr. Finn, I do not think you have ever met my brother, Lord Chiltern.' Then the two young men bowed, and each of them muttered something. "'Do not be in a hurry, Oswald. You have nothing special to take you away. Here is Mr. Finn, come to tell us who are all the possible new Prime Ministers. He is uncivil enough not to have named Papa.' "'My father is out of the question,' said Lord Chiltern. "'Of course he is,' said Lady Laura. "'But I may be allowed my little joke.' "'I suppose he will at any rate be in the Cabinet,' said Phineas. "'I know nothing whatever about politics,' said Lord Chilton. "'I wish you did,' said his sister, "'with all my heart.' "'I never did, and I never shall, for all your wishing. "'It's the meanest trade going, I think, "'and I'm sure it's the most dishonest. "'They talk of legs on the turf, "'and of course there are legs, "'but what are they to the legs in the house? "'I don't know whether you are in Parliament, Mr. Finn.' "'Yes, I am, but do not mind me.' "'I beg your pardon. Of course there are honest men there, and no doubt you're one of them.' "'He is indifferent honest, as yet,' said Lady Laura. "'I was speaking of men who go into Parliament to look after government places,' said Lord Chilton. "'That is just what I'm doing,' said Phineas. "'Why should not a man serve the Crown? He has to work very hard for what he earns.' "'I don't believe that the most of them work at all.' However, I beg your pardon, I didn't mean you in particular. Mr. Finn is such a thorough politician that he will never forgive you, said Lady Laura. Yes, I will, said Phineas, and I'll convert him some day. If he does come into the house, Lady Laura, I suppose he'll come on the right side. I'll never go into the house, as you call it, said Lord Chilton. But, I tell you what, I shall be very happy if you'll dine with me tomorrow at Moroni's. They give you a capital little dinner at Maroney's, and they've the best chateau Chem in London. Do, said Lady Laura in a whisper. Oblige me. Phineas was engaged to dine with one of the vice-chancellors on the day named. He had never before dined at the house of this great law luminary, whose acquaintance he had made through Mr. Lowe, 
and he had thought a great deal of the occasion. Mrs. Fremantle had sent him the invitation nearly a fortnight ago, and he understood that there was to be an elaborate dinner-party. He did not know it for a fact, but he was in hopes of meeting the expiring Lord Chancellor. He considered it to be his duty never to throw away such a chance. He would in all respects have preferred Mr. Fremantle's dinner in Eaton Place, dull and heavy though it might probably be, to the chance of Lord Chiltern's companions at Moroni's. Whatever might be the faults of our hero, he was not given to what is generally called dissipation by the world at large, by which the world means self-indulgence. He cared not a brass farthing for Moroni's chateau et Kemme, nor for the wondrously studied repast which he would doubtless find prepared for him at that celebrated establishment at St. James's Street, not a farthing, as compared with the chance of meeting so great a man as Lord Moles, and Lord Chiltern's friends might probably be just the men whom he would not desire to know. But Lady Laura's request overrode everything with him. She had asked him to oblige her, and of course he would do so. Had he been going to dine with the incoming Prime Minister, he would have put off his engagement at her request. He was not quick enough to make an answer without hesitation, but after a moment's pause he said he should be most happy to dine with Lord Chiltern at Moroni's. "'That's right. Seven-thirty sharp. Only I can tell you you won't meet any other members.' Then the servant announced more visitors, and Lord Chiltern escaped out of the room before he was seen by the newcomers. These were Mrs. Bonteen and Lawrence Fitzgibbon, and then Mr. Bonteen, and after them Mr. Rattler, the whip, who was in a violent hurry and did not stay there a moment, and then Barrington Earl, and young Lord James Fitzhoward, the youngest son of the Duke of St. Bungay. In twenty or thirty minutes there was a gathering of liberal political notabilities in Lady Laura's drawing-room. There were two great pieces of news by which they were all enthralled, Mr. Mildmay would not be Prime Minister, and Sir Everard Powell was dead. Of course, nothing quite positive could be known about Mr. Mildmay. He was to be with the Queen at Windsor on the morrow at eleven o'clock, and it was improbable that he would tell his mind to any one before he told it to Her Majesty. But there was no doubt that he had engaged the Duke, so he was called by Lord James, to go down to Windsor with him, that he might be in readiness if wanted. "'I've learned that at home,' said Lord James, who had just heard the news from his sister, who had heard it from the Duchess. Lord James was delighted with the importance given to him by his father's coming journey. From this, and from other equally well-known circumstances, it was surmised that Mr. Mildmay would decline the task proposed to him. This, nevertheless, was only a surmise, whereas the fact, with reference to Sir Everard, was fully substantiated. The gout had flown to his stomach, and he was dead. "'By blank, yes, as dead as a herring,' said Mr. Rattler, who at that moment, however, was not within hearing of either of the ladies present. He then rubbed his hands, and looked as though he were delighted. And he was delighted.' not because his old friend Sir Everard was dead, but by the excitement of the tragedy. "'Having done so good a deed in his last moments,' said Lawrence Fitzgibbon, "'we may take it for granted that he will go straight to heaven.' "'I hope there'll be no crowner's quest, Rattler,' said Mr. Bonteen. "'If there is, I don't know how you'll get out of it.' 
"'I don't see anything in it so horrible,' said Mr. Rattler. "'If a fellow dies leading his regiment, we don't think anything of it. "'Sir Everard's vote was of more service to his country "'than anything that a colonel or a captain can do. "'But nevertheless, I think that Mr. Rattler was somewhat in dread "'of future newspaper paragraphs, "'should it be found necessary to summon a coroner's inquisition "'to sit upon poor Sir Everard.' While this was going on, Lady Laura took Phineas apart for a moment. "'I am so much obliged to you. I am indeed,' she said. "'What nonsense!' "'Never mind whether it's nonsense or not, but I am. I can't explain it all now, but I do so want you to know my brother. You may be of the greatest service to him, of the very greatest. He is not half so bad as people say he is. In many ways he is very good, very good.' "'And he's very clever.' "'At any rate, I will think and believe no ill of him.' "'Just so. Do not believe evil of him, not more evil than you see. "'I am so anxious, so very anxious, to try to put him on his legs, "'and I find it so difficult to get any connecting link with him. "'Papa will not speak with him, because of money.' "'But he is friends with you?' "'Yes. I think he loves me.' "'I saw how distasteful it was to you to go to him, and probably you were engaged. "'One can always get off those sort of things if there is an object.' "'Yes, just so. And the object was to oblige me, was it not?' "'Of course it was. But I must go now. We are to hear Daubeny's statement at four, and I would not miss it for worlds. "'I wonder whether you would go abroad with my brother in the autumn. But... I have no right to think of such a thing, have I? At any rate, I will not think of it yet. Good-bye. I shall see you perhaps on Sunday, if you are in town. Phineas walked down to Westminster, with his mind very full of Lady Laura and Lord Chiltern. What did she mean by her affectionate manner to himself? And what did she mean by the continual praises which she lavished upon Mr. Kennedy? Of whom was she thinking most? Of Mr. Kennedy? or of him. She had called herself his mentor. Was the description of her feelings towards himself, as conveyed in that name, of a kind to be gratifying to him? No, he thought not. But then might it not be within his power to change the nature of those feelings? She was not in love with him at present, he could not make any boast to himself on that head, but it might be within his power to compel her to love him. The female mentor might be softened. That she could not love Mr. Kennedy, he thought that he was quite sure. There was nothing like love in her manner to Mr. Kennedy. As to Lord Chiltern, Phineas would do whatever might be in his power. All that he really knew of Lord Chiltern was that he had gambled, and that he had drunk. End of chapter 8